Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 77, I speak with Kamal Singh, founder and CEO of NDE Solutions that grew over 100% last financial year to $14 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. We discuss how he realized he had undiagnosed ADHD and why it causes so many challenges with his early schooling. Why he left his degree early and entered the world of non-destructive testing. How he continually bumped into frustrations trying to drive innovations and new ideas when working inside large risk-averse corporations that prompted him to want to start his own business, why he doesn't like the idea of mixing family and business, how he handled the rapid growth, and what would help Australian universities better commercialise the great research they are doing on a global stage. If you are interested in non-destructive testing and high-end inspection solutions for valuable assets, check out ndesolutions.com, that's N-D-E-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S.com. So I'm here with Kim C the founder and CEO of NDE Solutions. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for having me on. That's all right. Great to have you here. So what were you doing before you started NDE Solutions? What did you study? What type of early jobs or companies did you work in? Yeah, so I um, I studied in, uh, uh, I studied at Adelaide University um, doing mechatronic engineering and economics. Um, during my university, I used to work as a, as a glassy, um, going around bars, um, cleaning up empty glasses and messes and all sorts. Uh, <laughs> and um, after, yeah, after university, well, actually, I didn't complete university. I ended up uh, leaving to start a job in the career that I'm currently in now uh, that NDE Solutions is. Um, found a job in the paper and decided to, to just go for it. And did they not need the full degree or it was sort of an entry-level position where they would sort of train you up? Yeah, so they were happy to uh, to do training. It was through TAFE this time and through um, an institute called the Australian Institute for Non-Destructive Testing. Um, so they, they covered a TAFE uh, syllabus as well as um, NDT training. That's right, NDT. And is that what you wanted to do? Or again, you thought you were going to go to a different area of engineering and then that because it was an interesting job but it didn't require the full course, that sort of is what led you to that direction? In the end, yeah, it's, it's exactly what I wanted to do. But initially when I got into it, I thought, okay, this is a bit different. Um, but I learned to like the hands-on aspect. So you're actually physically in the field collecting data about critical assets and then you're back at the office analyzing that data and providing a report that gives insight into the health of that asset. Um, so I, I learned to really love that balance of field work and office work. Um, now I'm stuck at a desk mostly and you know I miss going out into the field. Uh, and, and there's some really good uh, camaraderie out there. Uh, you know, you, you spend a lot of time with your coworkers, and you're on a on a mission to complete the jobs together. So you have a bit of fun in the process. You know, it takes you to some really cool environments as well. And what are some examples of the, the type of environments that you go to? Okay, so a lot of work I did was around the Cooper Basin, so the outback. Um, it's absolutely beautiful out there. It gets hot though, like really hot. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a struggle to keep up with that and keep uh, hydrated. So you try and plan your field work for the early parts of the day, getting up early. Um, I worked in remote parts of Queensland, the calcium gas field area. Uh, it's it's beautiful out there as well. Uh, lots of forestry, um, um, just there's forestry everywhere. And um, you know, you'll go to this small little clearing, and there's a well pad there, and that's producing gas in the middle of nowhere. And and you'll test those assets. Um, some of the other places are Norway. Um, I spent four months out there um, working on a construction project for an offshore offshore gas field BP Chardonnay. It was that was a pretty cool project because um, the it was a high seismic zone, high corrosion, so it was just over engineered to a really high degree. And so I find a lot of, you know, teenagers don't really know what engineering is or what an engineer does. So when you were 10 or 12, it was someone in your family or uh, friends or their parents engineers, or or how did sort of engineering as an idea um, come into your mind when you were still sort of uh, in your teenagers? Right. So so I'm an engineering technician, not a full-blown engineer, but um, engineering was just, I mean, I was born with the love for... (sighs) mechanics and electronics and computers and software, all of it, the whole thing. I just loved understanding how things work. Um, it was just something I was drawn to. And I would, and I've mentioned before, I would destroy things and put new things back together. Um, so it was, it's, it's still to this day, it just, it drives me. Um, and now I'm just, I'm fixated on creating new things, not just in a service, but products that other people can use. And so there's someone to tell you when you were growing up, hey, you've got the mind of an engineer or you just sort of researched and discovered people like me should be, or this is what an engineer does for a living. They did, right? And I mean, I don't know if it really helped me at all because I, I'm i almost certain, like 99.9% certain I'm undiagnosed ADHD. Uh, now I've learned to live with that and use it for the benefits that it is. And it's, you know, with a good team behind you and doing what you love, it really works well. But as a child, I was uh, at school, I was ostracized a bit. Like I enjoyed it and I really wanted to apply myself, but I just, I didn't understand why I couldn't. I didn't understand why I couldn't do my homework. I didn't understand why I couldn't pay attention in class. And so, so to me, someone would tell me these things, but I wouldn't believe them because I wasn't performing, right? I thought I was somehow defective. Um, and so, um, yeah, I received that, but it, it didn't it didn't sink in. I didn't believe it because of what I was going through. So, so you could take things apart. You could, you know, you had a very logical engineering brain, but then on the maths test or the science test, you wouldn't get the good marks. You'd say, well, you know, I need really high marks. Was it sort of like that? So you had the knowledge, but it wouldn't translate into study and, you know, sort of rote learning and, and school performance? No, I got high marks. Uh, I just I just couldn't do my homework unless I was really stressed out or I couldn't pay attention. I, I just, I've got a really short attention span for something once I don't... Once I once I kind of worked it out, and then I'm going, okay, this is boring, this is repetitive. Uh, let's go on to the next thing. So that's normally when my mind drifts. So it's like this need for constant um, new topics, uh, kind of like living TikTok, if you will. Um, <laughs> and, and you had yeah. so, um, so was that hard in your your early jobs until you sort of had your own business, or, or again you were drawn towards jobs with enough variety and stimulation that. 
um, it was better once you finished school and sort of went into the workforce? Well, what I've learned is, uh, look, and there are better ways than, than this driver I'm about to explain, but what I've learned is that uh, the cortisol levels in your body actually stimulate you to be able to focus and push through. So I would just be um, in moments heightened stress. Um, so I I would take things to a later deadline sometimes, but I would always finish on time because the cortisol would say it would kick in and my productivity would go, you know, and it, say for example, in an hour I'd get done what I could in four hours of work. And then as I started to mature in my career, I started to learn tricks and I started to develop small little, you know, uh, spreadsheets and things like that to help me tricks. Um, and so I found more efficient ways of doing my job. Um, and then it became really easy. And what I realized was the bar is not very high to jump over. So it was pretty easy for me to finish off a lot of my work and then, and then, yeah, drift off into researching things that I enjoyed. Yeah, and so you've um, started your studies, you've found a, an interesting job. Um, what made you want to start um, NDE Solutions? Was it, you know, you like the work, you thought you could do it better? Was it, again, the struggles of sort of being an employee versus being an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I feel like it was a calling just from the very start. I just, I thought, why, the first question was, uh, yeah, definitely, why, why can't I do this? And I would do it this way if I could do it, and I, I believe that might be better. Um, and you go through and you give ideas and you 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 tell your employer this is what we should do differently and a lot of the time employers especially in large organizations i mean I, look i can't stop for all organizations but my particular experience with large organizations that i was in was that while there was a a willingness to learn and improve on the surface it didn't always translate to an outcome of change uh, based on feedback uh, and that was frustrating for me because I knew I could picture it in my head. These are the small ways and maybe sometimes slightly larger ways in which we could do things differently and maybe improve our service to our customer and improve the way we perform the job to make it easier for ourselves. Like a scenario is where everybody could win. Um, but that's difficult from a low level inside an organization to to push. And that's what I found. So in hindsight, was it again, you were too junior and that, or again, maybe they were more focused on the commercial outcomes and, and you were removed from that or, or what do you think some of those barriers were to getting people bought into new ideas and change? Or it's just the size, there's so much complexity, the effort, no one's responsible for the whole process. What were some of those barriers to change? I think there's definitely a few. I mean, of course, the first is fear. Everybody wants things to remain the same. You know, um, people want, yeah, they want security and certainty. Uh, so there's a certain level of that. And then there's the large organization and the the lack of budget if there was anything that required money. And the process, if you did want to get budget to get through that, is cumbersome and a low chance of success. Um, you would need a champion in management to make it happen. And I was, while I did have a couple champions across the time that I worked, nothing ever panned out. It, it was one of those one of those blocks or the other that would just prevent prevent something from happening. But it doesn't mean we didn't do good work um, with the tools we had and with the um, with what we could do with what we had. We did differently, and amongst our small team, um, so there were there were some victories, and especially in what the client received. Uh, you know, because 
I'm in the services game, so everything is about your customer's experience and communicating to them in the most effective way the health of their asset. So we did succeed, but to me, it just it should have gone a lot further and a lot faster. But just those roadblocks. And was so was there a particular moment where you said, "Look, the best way I can do this is to just start my own business, so then I don't have to navigate." you know, managers and of managers and my boss's boss's boss. And um, was there a point where you finally sort of got fed up or was it more an opportunity to start and it was just the timing was right to, to start there, new solutions? There was a, a straw that broke the camel's back. And I, I, I think I, I did mention it on another podcast. I had made an innovative solution, which uh, as far as I could see, hadn't been done before. And, you know, we, we were able to to cover a lot of piping in a small amount of time and accurately identify potential locations that were going to leak in the future and quickly um, have the maintenance team address that with wrapping those locations. Uh, I'd done something that was outside of the manufacturer's specification, modified a tool, uh, probably broke that specific tool permanently for, it was a consumable component of it, but it worked for what we needed it to work for. And and I guess that was met with some resistance that that should not happen again. Um, and that, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, and then, uh, as I mentioned um, before, I have I just went on to work in a completely different field to, to get a fresh start. I started doing NBN with my brother. I was running cables down the street, coax into people's houses, um, and that was that was me saying, okay, you can't stay here and just think about what, how it should be different or talk about it. Action needs to come. And if that action means you're leaving the job and the career that you love so that you might have the chance to start it again, um, that's the path I took. And so was there an opportunity with the MBN or your brother was doing that? Or again, you were a bit burned out on the, the non-destructive testing and thought I was going to do something different for a while and be in charge of my own destiny. And then, like I said, figure out a pathway back in the future. So I was ever burned out. I don't think I've ever been burned out. You know, fingers crossed. Uh, just a desire outweighed continuing the way I was. Um, so, so yeah. D does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And what was that like? I mean, was it easier than you thought running your own business? Were there challenges that you didn't foresee versus being an employee? Um, what was that journey like with your brother in that business? Oh, with my brother? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's hard working for your brother. And I'm sure I'm sure um, it's, it's hard for my brother working for me. Like, I love my brother so much. And family, uh, I don't think should work together because we don't know how to... Um, not cross those barriers. We're so comfortable with each other, right? Where my business partner, Josh, um, we met first as coworkers and then we went into business together. And that relationship is amazing. Now we're friends after going into business together. And it's just so different because I, I, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's different. Like you can see eye to eye and you can achieve a goal together where with family, you're too, you cross boundaries that you wouldn't normally cross. And I don't think that's effective for a good team, um, if that makes sense. 
Is some of that unique to a sort of sibling relationship? Do you think it could be different in a family business if it was, a, you know, you with one of your parents or you with your spouse? Or, or is it sort of, you know, you think family in general, again, it's hard to, to manage the, the personal and the professional together? Definitely hard to manage the personal and the professional. And I, for myself, I'd rather have a family member than a coworker in my business because you've only got one family. And, you know, family to me is is on an incredibly high pillar uh, it's so important. Um, and it, don't get me wrong, so is business. They're both two of the loves of my life. And mixing them just, I don't, in my opinion, I know people do it well, uh, but in my opinion, I would rather enjoy one on its own and enjoy the other on its own and and, and give them both the respect they deserve. Yeah, and so you've um, left the, the role that you're in, you're in the family business, and then you um, went out and started NDE Solutions. Um, what was the first 12 months like of that journey? Um, it's It happened so fast that it was hard. Uh, but hey, just give me a couple seconds to process. It was, you were always striving and you didn't have time to worry. Um, you were always wondering how you were going to get that next piece of equipment or, or get that next person on board to execute the the projects that you were winning and then you were worried about how you were going to win the next projects, but you were too busy to dwell on that worry. Um, and it, it all sort of just clicked. I honestly don't know how, but if I were to look at the frame of my mind, it was it was so determined to achieve the outcome. Uh, the determination was 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 very high, um, and the love for what I did. And I've had several failed businesses in the past. I mean, I wouldn't even call them failed businesses; they were just non-starters. And what I realized was the passion wasn't there. Whereas with NDE Solutions, the passion is it's it's a hundred percent there. So with that passion behind it and that determination, somehow everything just clicked into place. But nothing was ever enough. I had that mindset of we need to build more, we need to get more equipment, we need to get better people, and we need to get them on board fast, and we need to win more work, and we need to deliver the work in the best way possible so that the customer asks us back. And we need to be relentless in our pursuit, but without being too pushy. What were some of the other businesses that that you that didn't kind of like you said were non-starters? Were they like again hobby businesses or you were at university or high school or can you talk us through some of those? Yeah, sure. It was just it's just stuff people brought up. I mean, one was with uh, with a friend. I looked at an e-commerce website. We had this really cool idea before Kogan to basically do what Kogan Kogan did, but just didn't have the drive to do it or the know-how uh, or the passion for that. And another one was home automation before it was a big thing. I mean, Clipsal came out with what they had, and we were looking at some other automation systems which could have the potential to change significantly the experience inside of the home. But again, not something I was passionate about. Um, and hence, we did one job and it stopped there. Um, milk powder. Uh, remember when that was going on? Mm-hmm. I looked at getting into that. A friend of mine had a, had a deal with uh, one of the milk producers here at, to set up an OEM production label and sell it into China. And that almost got to a distributor's deal uh and it then it didn't but i'm really glad all this stuff didn't go through because eventually i found um 
my true path. And and with ND Solutions, like you've got a background in engineering, you've worked in similar non-destructive testing roles, but was it hard getting the trust of these big asset owners? It's very high stakes, right? You're in gas and oil fields, you're in remote locations, there's a lot at stake. You know, it's not like a, you know, a small consumer electronic where people return it when it doesn't work. Was it hard winning work and tenders in, in those sort of early days when you weren't a, a big business and a, as well known as an entity? I believe it, it, that's always going to be a challenge to anybody new and especially as as a completely new entity on the board um everybody says they can do a better job everybody says that and and these engineers and these companies they hear that every day so yeah it was incredibly hard and you give them these these heartfelt speeches and they believe you but they also are reserved so they'll give you little parcels and you'll get more and more fortunately the two locations i started i had somewhat of a reputation for delivering and you know i've heard that the journey of your own business it can start a lot it starts a lot longer before you actually open the doors and and for me that had started i built a, a bit of a reputation in the areas that i've worked that i could deliver quality work and i could deliver it in a, in a good format in terms of the report with good service to the customer. So I kind of used those previous relationships to get on board. And it was all through the subcontractor realm because the end customer, while they were aware of me, they only deal with big names. Um, so Santos, for example, they don't have time to, to mess around with small contractors who are high risk. Um, and you can completely understand that. So we we had to start as subcontractors. I used my reputation to to enter into those subcontractor arrangements, and then we had to grow the business organically. And that's how we were able to hit tier one contractors and companies straight away uh, was through subcontracting. And then eventually, uh, our reputation grew and grew until. Uh, and a certain element of innovation in what we were doing and the way we were doing it and producing custom products allowed us to cross that barrier no, going direct. And you mentioned um, in your early employee days, you had a lot of product innovations and ideas and they would sort of get lost in the big bureaucracy. Was it a lot easier when you're the one running the company or was it just a different set of challenges? Instead of getting management approval, it was capital and it was other and stress and cash flow. Was it a lot easier to commercialize some of these product ideas you had or was it, like I said, just a different set of challenges and still very difficult to commercialize? So much easier and definitely a different set of challenges, 100%. There all those all those things are massive considerations. I mean, cash flow, is the, uh, cash flow resources and attention are, are pretty big um, problems and and you've got to monitor where it, even your attention's going. Um, but still, it was so much easier because I was calling the shots because I knew and believed that something could, th- this could work. Uh, yeah. Well, what about the clients? Like you mentioned, you know, management and your own company can be risk averse, but clients can also be very risk averse. You know, they, they want things done in, in a certain right. way. So what about the process? Like I said, even though it's your business, you still, at the end of the day, have to get the client on board, right? With the process and the product and the method. Um, so what was that process like when it's your company, so you've got a little bit more credibility, you're at the top of the company, um, but the client at the end of the day has to also be bought in? Yeah, definitely. Uh, look, I've, I've got, some other major shareholders with me, Josh being the director of ops and um, uh, Nathan is another director out there as well. And so is my brother. Um, So there's there's a good core team of us. Um, But the 
on the the customer you were asking about rep- reputation? Um, but for new products, so you've built up reputation, yeah. but, but when you want to commercialize one of these new innovations or a new product, um, what was the process like um, at NDA for being getting the customers on board with something a bit new and different? Step by step. So it starts with a small proof of concept and trial and then back and forth and many trials. And at each trial, you get through a gate where you've proven what you set out to demonstrate. So you present a hypothesis. Uh, this is what we hypothesize if we produce X, Y, and Z. And this, uh, and this is the perceived outcome. And then you validate and you keep going. And at each gate you pass through, there's another level of investment that goes in. Um, and eventually you've got yourself an end product. Yeah. And a customer that wants wants to purchase it, and, and all and this energy and momentum is is really sort of paid off. Um, you're growing over a hundred percent per year, doing fourteen million dollars in annual revenue last financial year. So, what was it like? Um, the good and the bad of managing that sort of rapid growth and expansion of the business. Bad is, you've never got a couple bucks throw up together because you spend it all on growth, right? It's like, yeah, you're growing but you don't have spare cash uh, and you want more money to grow faster. And it's, uh, so that's the bad. The good is you're so busy. Your team is celebrating in their victory and you know, your team's effective. That's a, that's a really good thing to know, to, to know that you've put together the right team and, and they, they are aligned with what you want to achieve. That's probably one of the best things about it. Uh, what else? Um, the bad, uh, I don't know. Okay, it's so satisfying that there's not much bad for it. The whole process is just so satisfying. What about you mentioned you used to love being in the field, but now the nature of your know, sort of focus in the company is you spend a lot of time at a desk. What was that process like of sort of mm-hmm. letting go? As you got bigger clients, bigger things, I'm sure you still drive a lot of product innovation, but you're probably again responsible for so many other aspects of the business. Was that hard, sort of letting go of some of those things that you were really sort of passionate about and very skilled at and interested in to focus on the bigger picture and the overall sort of growth strategy of the firm? Yeah, I think that's hard for uh, for any leader, especially when they're really passionate about it. Um, but you have to trust in your team and let them do what they're what they're best at. You know, just getting out of their way. Um, and I think that's it's almost a step for every leader once your business grows to a certain point. Um, that you have to just take the leap uh, and kind of not look back, offer support, but don't take over. If you start taking over, then who's steering the ship? And um, what about in terms of technology? A lot of people hear technology. They think of sort of, you know, consumer technology, apps and software and, and websites. Um, but you're very much operating in the physical world with physical sort of assets. Um you know, is there a lot of innovation going on in, in sort of like in the real world, so to speak, with you know self-driving um, cars in sort of mining sites and other vehicles and the work that you're doing? People just don't see it because it's not um, something the average person interfaces with, or is it still just at the very tip of the spear? A lot of these sort of innovation and new ideas and technology being leveraged through, um, you know, all these sort of environments where people wouldn't necessarily and. Um, you know, operational technologies that people wouldn't necessarily sort of know about unless they're an engineer or operating in these environments. Yeah, I think you'd have to be in the industry to know about it because as an outsider to this industry, I don't even know what it was. So I wouldn't know that there's a $100,000 bit of kit that is the size of my laptop that really, you couldn't believe that. Uh, And when I got into the industry, I was like, whoa, what is this? And, And 
it's always moving forward in our industry. And a lot of the tech would have, it trickles down from medical and then we get it. And now I feel like we're in a new age of technology and innovation where you've got machine learning and AI taking part in in what we do and trying to automate that. In our industry, it's a little bit more challenging. So we've embarked on a very specific task with our machine learning objectives uh, on something that we know we do well, and we built a hardware element around that. And we're seeing a lot of players rise up and offer innovation, innovative and new solutions that are that involve um, some of the some of the cutting edge tech. So it is exciting times. So, so what's an example of that where you're looking to integrate more machine learning? Is it data collection, sensors, things like that? So yeah, it'd be data collection, analysis of that data, and then later on down the line, what does that data mean to a customer uh, and their asset and the future of that asset under different operating conditions? And so, like you said, do you feel that people in your sort of area, both the clients and the service providers, are doing a lot of innovation, but because it's quite niche, it just doesn't get much coverage in the media, whereas... You know, there's a chat GPT or something that helps you write a better email blog post. is very relatable. People can play with it. So it sort of it, it sort of gets a lot more talk in the media. But actually, there's huge sort of innovation going on, like you said, with sensors and um, industrial control systems and things in, in the physical world and industrial sort of applications. Yeah, I think your your business to business stuff won't get a lot of attention. Uh, unless it's you know a sales force or something, but your B two C, like Apple, because everybody can touch it, and you you are you're marketing direct to the consumer, and there's massive budgets behind that, and your consumers are using these products, and if they're different enough, they're creating these movements, whereas ours are, in it, we sell to a very specific part of the value chain in in, in our major customers, so it's not something that's spoken about too much in the open. And I mean, I don't know. I, I love it. But for example, my wife, uh, she'll hear me talk and I can tell she's bored. She <laughs> pretends to be interested. So uh, so I don't know if anybody outside of the interest, industry would have as much passion for it as, as what uh, someone inside the industry does. Uh, probably not. Just uh, not an interesting topic to uh, talk about engineering and, and what you found wrong with something and how you prevented a loss of containment. I find that exciting. But my wife... Maybe not so much. Yeah, so it'll probably never be sort of seen in the mainstream, but below the surface and, and in sort of uh, specialized areas, there's a huge amount of uh, interesting technologies coming out. And so if we zoom out a little bit to sort of yeah, entrepreneurship more broadly, you've been interested in business, you've started a bunch of businesses, and has really taken off. Well, what trends do you see Australian entre- or you know Australian entrepreneurs doing really well with? And then where do you see areas for sort of further improvement? I mean, we've got a, it's a challenging environment for startups in Australia. There's not a lot of investment that could happen uh, or opportunities for investment for free revenue companies, especially in the tech space, uh, compared to the US, you know, with a $30 trillion GDP, um, we're tiny. So it'd be nice to see our population grow, but the problem is we don't have enough housing or infrastructure. Um, and then you've got inflation running rampant. And to me, that's more of a supply problem here. I just love to see us systematically building up the value chain and some policy to to maybe add a certain amount of value to what we export before it's pulled out of the ground. Um, we've got a road ahead of us. Technology is definitely a good path for us to go down. But Australia has, I was at the Australian Centre for Business Growth with UniSA and um, 
Uh, Anne Angel was talking. Uh, she's a commercialization expert, and she was saying there's such a high level of innovation coming out of Australia, but that doesn't translate through to commercialized product. So there's a gap in between in between um, innovation and commercialization, uh, and early stage tech and commercialization. And what I've learned is it's it's very commercialization is a very expensive process. Um, it is nice to be. It'd be nice to see more government su support in that area because I believe the government would net more returns in the long term. I mean, I just look at how much money we're keeping in the country uh, versus our international competitors who will just take that money overseas. Um, so, uh, more support for local companies would deliver more dollar value for the government and for our country. I'm not saying the government doesn't do a lot. They're 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 great and and they've supported us, but their dollar could go further if they if they put more investment there. And, and so, do, are they funding too much into just the research and not enough into the commercialization? Would you say, like, if they invested into allowing you to scale and commercialize, like, say, manufacturing, not just money into the research part of it? Yeah, you're you're definitely right there, Derek. I, I think. That there needs to be more on the commercialization side. Uh, there's so much going into research, but I think the total pool of, of both should increase. Like, not that you should take from one and put into the other. Research is so important, and we're a world leader in research here in Australia, and that's something we should be proud of. Um, but we need to turn that research into into a return. Uh, and so the commercialization piece is so important, and there needs to be more education on, on commercialization. Uh, there's a really good community of business throughout Adelaide and Australia of people who, who have experience and that can teach. And it'd be nice to see more programs to get more knowledge out there. Uh, I was lucky enough to meet quite a few individuals in that case. So the combination of education and extra extra capital input we could we could see a really good return down the line. What role do you see Australian universities playing in that? I, I know some are starting to do sort of UK style university sort of venture capital funds where they do try and help and um, add capital to commercialize some of the research that comes out of universities. Is that something you could see more Australian universities also getting involved with? That's a cool idea. I actually hadn't heard about that until you mentioned that to me uh, just then. Um, that would be awesome. Uh, we absolutely love working with the universities. Uh, they're, we've got world-class universities across Australia and here in Adelaide as well. And the more you communicate with them, it becomes easier. When we first signed a commercialization deal with the UniSA, it was a lot of work uh, because we didn't know each other and we had our own needs. And now we both understand each other and what we're trying to achieve. And we realize that symbiotically, it's a perfect relationship. Uh, so. It'd be nice to see more companies working with universities like we are because they're so open to do it. And once you've crossed that barrier of learning how to communicate with them and what their needs are and what your needs are, it's 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 very fruitful. Okay. And um, if you were um, giving advice to the younger version of yourself, you know, when you're 18, someone like you is interested in um, pulling things apart, putting them back together. You got a lot of ideas, you got a lot of energy, but it's all sort of, you're not sure where to, to go with it. What advice would you give someone like that right now is maybe at the tail end of high school or the starting point of their further study and not sure what to do with, with sort of business and life and work and things like that? I think to understand oneself is important and that took me a long time. Uh, if If I could teach my younger self how to understand myself better and uh, achieve 
I mean, through practices like meditation, things like that, uh, that would really go a long way. And that would drive a lot of other good traits that I've learned over the time, over time, like increasing my level of patience and not going for things at the margin for short-term reward and playing the longer game. Uh, if I could somehow package that and send that as information to my younger self, that'd be good. But in saying that, I'm, I'm happy with the way it's, it's turned out in the journey. So did someone sort of guide you, like you said, you sort of, you didn't realize you had some sort of ADHD type uh, behaviors. Was it just, you met enough people, you realized like you were a bit of an outlier in certain areas or, or how did you over time develop this self-awareness and understanding or was it just through sort of the school of hard knocks and trial and error running into a lot of walls? I, I guess I, I started to become more aware of myself and I realized, I mean, I had the idea that it, something was different about me when I was younger. I can't sit still. My I'm easily distracted. I'm impulsive, um, and I'm much better with those things now. And I know how to make them work with myself. But it is very apparent. And then this incredible motivation and will to do something, but not being able to execute it and not understanding why. Uh, that that's was the most challenging part. But yeah, it, it, it's very apparent when you're when you're looking at yourself from an external lens. And other people would make mention. Like at a certain point, you realize it was just like a personality quirk. It was something deeper that you need to sort of learn about and adjust for. Absolutely. Um, learn about and use to its full potential because it, it is, I believe, it's it's a very powerful state uh, if you can learn if you can learn about yourself because uh, you can hyper-focus. And if you're in a, in a career that you love, it works well. Yeah, I think one uh, ADHD researcher once called it um, a bit like having a Ferrari engine and bicycle brakes. So if you're not able to, to steer and control it, you very quickly accelerate into walls and off cliffs. But if you can control it, you know, again, and, and sort of ride it, it, you can manage it very effectively because you've got, like you said, that ability to take action and drive very um, in a focused manner. But a lot of people can't balance that extreme sort of energy and power with, you know, the self-regulation might not match the, the power behind it. That's a really good analogy, Derek. Um, that that, that I, I feel like that does sum up quite a bit of it. And with practice, you can upgrade those brakes. And uh, it's not just a powerful engine. So no, it's, a, it's a great analogy. Excellent. And um, where do you see the next five, 10 years for, uh, for yourself and for ND Solutions? Obviously, a lot of technology, um, productization of different things, as well as your, your services. Um, yeah, where do you want to take it? So we've got a plan in place. At the moment, we're only looking out three and a half years. Uh, and that's a 5x growth uh, as far as equity value of the business goes. Um, beyond that, wow. I mean, we should be a leader nationally at the top of the top and employing lots of people, training lots of people. Um, and, and without, while I think the key for me is I, I want to see us maintain our level of service because uh, growth without maintaining your service, uh, it's, it's not good enough. Uh, so I want to maintain our level of excellent service and, and grow the business. And and we're, we're rolling out a big ESOP now so that our staff and everybody gets a piece in it. So it'll be good to see a return in everyone's pockets by the end of it. That'll just be, that'll be great. And, and maybe, yeah, just watching everyone grow. Um, that'll be cool. 
And is service different in some ways in a very technical field? Like some people think service is, you know, if you're a very technical business, it's really about the technical capabilities. But is it your standard service, you know, being responsive, being professional, following things up, delivering on time, on budget? Is it the sort of the basics of service that never goes away because you're dealing with humans? Or are there additional layers of service where you, you know, do further research or partnering or you're more technically and strategically involved in your clients' businesses versus a, um, what other people would consider good service in a in a non-technical business? Yeah, Derek, that old school service that you were talking about there, I believe that's 80% of it. Uh, it's that old school basics. Uh, and then the 20% is the innovation and the next level, but you have to get past showing that you can deliver a good service to your customer using all the old school ways of responsiveness and, and delivering on time, delivering on budget and communication um, for you to be able to take the next step with your customer and look at innovative ways. I mean, sometimes you can be lucky enough and get in the door straight away with innovation, but then you have to go back to those basics in service. Those are underlying. They have to... Uh, they have to be there at all times. So 100% agreeing. And, and what about in terms of international expansion? I imagine you have some projects and clients that take you beyond Australia at the moment. Is that something you're also looking to do more of? Or is it so far it's mainly been within Australia most of the work? Yeah, we uh, we do some work on the Pacific Islands uh, and the Fiji, uh, New Mia. Uh, and, and the people that get to go, I, I'm kind of envious because it's a pretty cool spot to work. Uh, I wouldn't say envious. I, I just... That'd be cool if I could go too. Uh, uh, we do want to look at products into the U.S. and technology into the U.S. services outside of Australia. I don't know. It's a it's a big move, and I'm not sure. I think we're just probably happy being a very large player in Australia in our services business. Uh, but technology internationally, absolutely. Um, I love the U.S. market. Um, my wife's from the U.S. Uh, I can see us selling product into the US, uh, the UK, maybe the Middle East, their big oil and gas market there. Um, we haven't worked out the sequence, but we know the US and the Middle East and the UK are, are definitely up there. And is that fundamentally because a lot easier to you know ship a product once you've made it? it versus you know flying people in and out or employing people and managing them across all different um, continents and countries if you were to and winning you know tenders and and dealing with all the regulations in all those sort of countries is that the barrier to scaling the service side of the business geographically uh, definitely it's 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 that access to talent and the time zones and communication with head office that almost they need to be their own entity because when they're awake you're asleep or you're outside of hours so um it's a big it's a big punt. Uh, it's it's not that I don't have the desire. Well, I mean, yeah, I guess I don't have the desire to grow, <laughs> grow services into the U.S. because I feel it's 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 way less scalable. Um, whereas technology product is it's it's so much easier to scale. Um, so take taking the investment for an overseas expansion, it makes more sense than something that you can scale, to me at least. Okay. And do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave with the audience first? Oof. Um, I don't thanks for listening, I guess. <laughs> no, that's all right. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Kim. No, no, thanks, Derek. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. 
To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.